There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. Plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. We're taking a stand against an institutionally imposed state of fear, stupidity, and automatic behavior. We are rebelling against extinction by proving we are not yet obsolete. We may be weird, but that's only because we're still alive. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, consciousness explorer and the author of Liminal Dreaming, Jennifer Dumpert. By going into these liminal spaces, the, the, like realizing the in-between awake and asleep has really made me aware of all of these in-between zones, like the fact that the world around me is kind of between me and it. Jennifer will be sharing the little-known but surprisingly accessible power of the in-between. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and other creatures. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Well, if the numbers from our feeds can be believed, it appears we're growing as a show, which is a great thing. Not that growth for growth's sake matters, but because it means that people are increasingly willing to spend time celebrating and defending what it means to be human in an era when so many institutions are quite simply out to get us. Together, we are enhancing our collective immune system, our ability to recognize and root out the ideas and mechanisms that are working against us. So one question I've been getting a few times over the past months is, who is Team Human playing against? Who is the other team? Honestly, I don't think that there's another team, at least not some other team of people. I don't think that the anti-human self-destructive qualities of this society we're living in are some reflection of human nature. I really don't. I'm starting to see stupidity more like ignorance. It's not dumb thoughts so much as the lack of coherence and knowledge, like an empty space. And I'm coming to see 
anti-human attitudes less as some form of evil and more like the absence of good. You know, darkness and cold, they're not forces at all. They're just the absence of light or heat. So yes, there are occasionally crazy people, I guess, if we're allowed to use that word anymore, mentally ill, who just do terrible things. And there's people who get caught up in misinformed crowd rage, where they stop seeing people who are different from them as human beings. Like when a crowd leader or a president calls a race of people cockroaches, that engenders these inhumane sentiments toward other humans. But even then, for the most part, the anti-human stuff is less intentional than systemic or some byproduct of systemic forces. So the, the enemies of Team Human, they're anything that keep us from recognizing our intrinsic worth and anything that prevents us from operating as a team. So social media, that's an easy one to pick on since it's designed to disable our higher cognitive processes, to paralyze our empathy and compassion, and instead trigger our basest fight-or-flight pre-human reptilian impulses. And it's also designed to prevent us from connecting meaningfully with one another and to distract us from the connections we can make in real life. You know, why do they do this? Because the makers of social media hate humans and, and want us incapable of thinking or communicating so that our civilization falls into the abyss of racism and hostility, utterly incapable of exercising the coordination necessary to avert climate disaster? I don't think that's very likely. They're simply trying to satisfy the demands of other systems like capitalism and central currency. So what I do in this show or in my books is I try to peel those back, right? The currency we use was issued by late medieval monarchs looking to slow the rise of the middle class. So they wrote laws that anyone who wanted to transact had to borrow currency issued from the central treasury and pay it back with interest. And in order for that money to be paid back, everyone has to compete with one another. The economy has to grow. And when you run an extractive operating system that has to grow on a planet with fixed circulating biology, you're going to end up running out of stuff. Does that mean the bankers are the enemies of Team Human? No, they're just either ignorant of the way the system they designed, the one that supported the elites who paid them, they're just ignorant of the way it would impact everything and everyone else. Or take industrialism. Industrialism is intrinsically anti-human. Historically, it had nothing to do with making more stuff more efficiently. You know, the assembly line was invented so employers wouldn't have to hire highly qualified yet expensive craftspeople. Factory workers, they only had to be taught a single simple task, like nailing one tack into the sole of a shoe. So training took minutes instead of years, and if the workers started to complain about their wages or conditions, they could simply be replaced the next day. Then machines, they removed even more people from the equation. First, consumers of factory goods, they didn't hate people, but they loved the idea that no human hands were involved in the creation of their products. And they used to marvel at the seamless machined edges of the early industrial age products. There was no trace of the tiny imperfections of hand-stitched or manually crafted goods. 
And that's why today, Chinese workers, they use a toxic chemical to remove all traces of their fingerprints from the phones they've assembled for us. This stuff actually, it's poison and it shortens their lives, but it removes all evidence of human involvement in the production of these goods. But something about the digital age is forcing us to begin to take responsibility for these systems. We, we can see them and, and kind of feel them as we hadn't before. In the era of television, all of these globally important issues, they were more of a show. In a digital environment, we begin to feel more culpable, more responsible. And that's how we get movements like Me Too, which are forcing culpability on people for what they've done. It's the way we put increasing focus on our own contributions to problems like climate change. You know, can I take that one more plane flight? The hotter it gets, the more I put on the air conditioner, and, and then the hotter I myself am making the world. It's also the reason we call one another out for the inconsistencies and hypocrisies of how we're living. Yet, however much I take personal responsibility for what I consume and the damage I do, the real underlying problems have to be addressed systemically and collectively, not just individually. We have to do it as a team. And the best I could think to call this collectivity was team human. But the actual teams you need to join are not just the listenership of this podcast. No, this you do for fun and inspiration or education and discovery or maybe to model a style of interaction and conversation. The things you need to join are the movements looking towards systemic change. For me, that's Extinction Rebellion, and I'll be sharing more about that work in a later broadcast. For you, it could be Sunrise or Indivisible or BLM or National Domestic Workers Alliance, National Resource Defense Council, um, the Southern Poverty Law Center. I've, I've argued a lot for human beings to do what they can at human scale, locally in the real world. But we must also acknowledge as well that the enemies we face are not human. You know, they're not operating on our ground face-to-face -face level. They're operating systemically at national and even global scales. We can develop rapport through face-to-face -face encounters, but this is only the first step toward the solidarity, the movement-making, and the collective organization we need to address our challenges as the team we are. In spite of the Herculean task for global transformation I've just described, we're going to have some fun today. And yes, deep fun can be globally transformative too. I'm delighted to introduce you all to my friend of, gosh, two decades now, someone who has accessed and explored the most deeply weird caverns of human consciousness, dream researcher and author of the new book, Liminal Dreaming, Jennifer Dumpert. Part of what Team Human's been about from the beginning is a celebration of the quirky nooks and crannies that make being human so much more than, than just being some kind of machine. And this liminal space, the space between waking and sleeping, is one of those nooks and crannies that people can go where you see all sorts of weird stuff. We often think of like waking and sleeping as like binary on, off, but there's this whole spectrum of swirling, kaleidoscopic, free associative, non-narrative experience. And because when you're in that state, you're both 
awake and so your waking mind is online and in dream space so you're having dream you can observe directly kind of what's happening in there and start start to kind of bring back some of that experience it's a very weird state i know it's like it's different i mean because sometimes you can get into a weird state if you meditate you can go to this open state it's this other place mm -hmm. But it's not as swirly as the place that you're talking about. It's not as swirly. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it tends to be like the meditation space tends to be like a really still, you know, open space. Although um, a lot of long-term meditators, like my spouse, have said that uh, when you're... And I've had this experience back in the days when I meditated really a lot. I used to be a very serious Zen practitioner. And you, there's sometimes you're like coasting up and down between hypnagogia, which is when you're falling asleep, hypnopontinu is when you're waking up. You're kind of coasting up and down, kind of like a stone skimming across water between that meditation space and that hypnagogic space. You know, so even in meditation, you can kind of get in there. Right. I guess in meditation, you're not supposed to, though. Yeah, I think in meditation, you're not supposed to. Because yeah. then it's like, oh, you just fall asleep in yeah, your chair. Yeah, exactly. You're, right. you're just like, you know, playing. You're playing. You're not being serious. Well, then that's the other thing. It's like, even before it's applied, is it, do you feel like it's okay to do it just because it's it's fun? Oh, hell yeah. That's mostly what I'm doing. <laughs> I mean, I, it started out, for me, it started out because I got so interested in the experience. I was going into it, and I was really exploring, and all this crazy, you know, my mind going on six tracks at once, like how much can I hold in my mind, or the ability to um, talk through hypnagogia, so to actually go in a dream space and mumble into a voice-activated recorder, or just like the things that were arising and, you know, being able to become conscious, more conscious in the space. So I was really just doing it for consciousness exploration. And then kind of as I got interested and started doing research, I found out all the other ways that people use it. But I'm, I'm personally am spending a lot of time just playing with mind, consciousness exploration. I mean, for a lot of people, the space right between wake and sleep is scary for them. Yeah, it's for some falling, people. loss of control, especially little kids. They're scared of that moment. But that's, you know, and actually I've had people come to me with insomnia. And one of the things that happens is people uh, freak out going to sleep. It's like someone, as someone said to me, the moment of losing consciousness. When I feel my consciousness slipping away, it makes me panic. And right. You know, it's and like so, when you kick your leg or you hear a voice or it's like, ah. Right. Which is when you know you're in hypnagogia. Right. Like a hypnic jerk or, you know, that sounds. It's a very aural space. But uh, as people are kind of learning to go into the hypnagogic space and kind of enjoy it a little bit more, it actually helps with that process. It helps with, you know, being afraid to fall asleep or lying in bed and being all anxious and having your mind whirling because you can't sleep you know uh -huh. freaked out about it so i mean it, it can it can help with the, what that experience is that said you're accessing whatever's down there you know whatever's in your unconscious and if there's a lot of if there's scary places in there um they, they probably do come up so for those either those who are, are going to get the book or those who want to try before it arrives in their house what would be like your simple uh what's the simplest way to just jump in and explore this? For one thing, like everyone is like a natural liminal dreamer. It's not like lucid dreaming that you, where you have to work at it. Everyone is a natural liminal dreamer. We all go through hypnagogia. Um, not, not everyone goes through hypnopompia, but everyone goes through hypnagogia. Uh, it's just a matter of recognizing that it's a thing. Being like, oh wait, this is a thing. You know, I, I, I know that weird semi-dream space that I'm going into. I've had that experience and a, a huge number of people, all they need to do is hear me say that it's a thing and they'll find it uh -huh. because everyone has it. But to, to, if you really want to find it, um, there's an exercise that people can also find 
on liminaldreaming.com, and it's also in the book. And it's something I call the feedback loop. And really what you do is wait until you're really sleepy. Late afternoon is a good time. It's, you can do it in bed when you're falling asleep, and you'll probably remember that you had a cool experience, but that'll be all you remember about it. But just uh, really like, rela- like relax, loosen your mind, um, relax your body, exhale all of your waking energy out and wait for whatever happens. It might just be points of light, might be kind of faces turning toward you. It might be your imagination starting to take over a little bit more, you know, because um, imagination as a faculty of perception is kind of key to this whole process. So it might be your imagine, you realize your imagination is kind of starting to drift a little bit more. And let that take on its own life and like take that in and then exhale out your waking energy into this forming hypnagogic dream and just let it be a feedback loop. You know, let your waking energy leave you and animate this dream and then it kind of comes back into you, you know, and then go back and forth. That's a really good way to find it. I mean, for me, it turned, the, the, these dreams or things are really mundane. I mean, it starts with what tasks do I have to do or what didn't I get done or who's mad at me or <laughs> it's not like, oh, I'm in a field with flowers and dragons really, and Even things. in liminal dream space, because REM dream space does tend to be a little bit more, like REM dreams, which you have in the middle of the night, those do tend to be a little bit more storyline. But the liminal dreamings, especially at the lighter stages of it, don't tend to have storylines as much. Well, it's not stories. I think it's just all the tension the feeling, of my the day. Tension, the tension of your day, yeah. A practice that some people do is going before, as you're going to sleep, like going through your whole day, just like, what happened to me today? Going through the feelings or whatever, to kind of work through all that so that you've kind of churned your mind through it before you kind of go into the dream space. Or like uh, do some sort of association, like sound or, sound or scent. You know, like sleep, like if you enjoy rose, sleep with rose by your bed and let the scent be kind of the association with something more pleasant. I would say that when you really go into the hypnagogic space, it's kind of more like DMT than anything else. That that really fast moving, right. kaleidoscopic, you know, hard to bring. You can like maybe bring back one little thread from it, but it's changing so much and so fast that, I mean, all you can, it's like a drop in an ocean. All, that's all, kind of all you can bring back. It's like the littlest right. bit of it. And that's the only ones that really worked for me. They just become like these, uh, you know, tunnel landscapey kind of. Tunnel landscapey yeah. is a really good description. That's what, kind of what it is for me. T- tunnel, kaleidoscope, spiral, spinning, I don't know. End of space odyssey sort of yeah. <laughs> kind of a thing. And I was doing that. First I thought, oh, this is a like meditation in some ways. Yeah. And that there's no, there didn't seem to be any content yeah, right. It, and, and, and yeah, in a lot of ways, it is kind of like you know a lot of what a lot of meditation is, especially like the kind of mindfulness meditation stuff, is being completely aware of the unfolding moment of now, not giving it story, not giving it history, not giving it future, just completely aware of the unfolding now moment. And in liminal dream space, that's very much what's happening. Um, partly because it's not as narrative and because it doesn't tend to have the same kind of subject object relationship. It's not like, like in REM dreams, it's very credible. You're even, even if you're, you know, on a, on a foreign planet with your dead cat or whatever, you you believe it's true Uh in the moment that you're in the dream. It's very credible, but it's not like it's me in a world often in liminal dream space. It's kind of just whatever is happening is, is happening, you know? So it, it does have very much that you know now unfolding moment so as i pay attention to it i'm very just in it i know which is real valuable in itself and that 
you know, we, we tend to understand everything. And I've even had guests talking about it, that humans understand everything as stories. You need to put everything in a story for people to be able to digest it or move on it or do something. And this kind of shows that you don't, yeah. that some of the most profound experiences are this, this timeless, purposeless zone or... Yeah, I mean, and, and actually in my experience, it's kind of like the strangest mind state of all of my mind states, or at least the ones that, of which I have any kind of consciousness, you know, like there's all the waking states, but, you know, my storytelling forward holding ego who kind of drives the show, you know, is very much in charge. And in REM dreams, you know, it's, you know, there's, okay, it's very, it's a very weird environment, but at least it's a, it's a format that I recognize and it's story-based. But these, these spaces are so unlike any other experience. And even at this point, I enjoy it more than I do REM dreams or lucid dreams or psychedelic experiences or whatever, partly because they're just so freaking weird. And does it make you less interested in psychedelics and these more intentional, in some ways, dualistic psychedelic experience? Now I'm straight, now I'm high, now I'm going up, now I'm having my six hour peak goes to the top and now my realization now my re-entry yeah it's like what 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 you're offering here is something that's as i've experienced it as intense as you know full-on mushroom trip thing but certainly way more in in one's control and no residue and no hangover you know i mean and you can drop into it anytime it's really common for me to just be like all right i'm going to be on the subway now for 20 minutes i'm just going to close my eyes and lean back and kind of dip into the space, you know, so it's kind of always there and always available. It's like, it's like as kids, we fantasize about the perfect 15 minute trip. Yeah. And it really is, it, you know, I mean, really is to sort of go into it. You know, I would say that for um, people who, like me, who did a lot of psychedelics in their youth and who maybe are like, okay, it takes more of a toll yeah. on my body and mind, but this is a really natural extension of it. And I think it's also, you know, like a lot of people have interest now in psychedelics because now that there's like, you know, CEOs are going and doing ayahuasca right. and Michael Pollan's book. And, you know, I've got people who I knew from freaking high school emailing me saying, well, you seem like someone who might know a psychedelic <laughs> therapist, you know, <laughs> um, you know, and so a lot of people are very interested, but a lot of people are not going to go do psychedelics either because, you know, of what it takes out of them or because it's illegal and they either don't want to or don't know how to, right. you know. So this is, I mean, for, you know, if you're interested in you know, playing with mind in the way that those things offer, again, it's great. It's a great way to do it. I mean, we're not doing a value judgment, but would you say no. ultimately it's better? Uh, I guess I'm not doing a value judgment. Right. I don't, it's hard to say, you know, I mean. Because I feel like, I mean, it's more like just, oh, do you want to open this door? Right. Oh, here. And you can just naturally. It's just part of. It's just part of what you right. have. Right, but then it feels like it integrates more into who you are and how you think, because it's a little bit less. I don't mean it's less special, but it's less sequestered. It's less. It's less sequestered. That's for sure. Right now, it's unmapped territory. You know, so even like with a even with a psychedelic, like you know what to expect. Like you were just saying, you know the whole arc of the experience, even if you've never taken LSD, right. you know, you go online and you can find out what, right. the, you know, what's, and you see the art or the whatever. So you, you know, maybe you have ideas about what to expect when you're experience. but like right now I'm sort of telling people it's kind of like this, but for the most part, almost nobody has really written about these spaces. I mean, do you think this is like, a, are these occult spaces like that were mapped out by you know, Madame Blavatsky or, or some people Aleister did. Crowley or something? Some people did. Like there's some like um like uh, the 
Bob Monroe. Robert Monroe, Journeys Out of Body. Yeah. Out of Body Experience coined the phrase. And he has, like, one of, part of his thing is that hypnagogia is the space that you go into in order to launch into out of body experiences. And there's a certain percentage of people who show up at my workshops or classes or whatever who are like out of body experience people. And they're like, oh, well, Robert Monroe has the whole steps to, you know, when you're in the experience. Or some of those people have kind of like gone into hypnagogic space, but it's pretty esoteric. People who've kind of gone in and done any kind of mapping in there, there's not very much of that. Right. So these are not like John Lilly's levels, you know, he, he's always taking, you know, I guess he was doing ketamine, and going, doing into, ketamine yeah. and going into isolation tanks. Yeah, exactly. And then found, oh, this is the dolphin level, this is the yeah. astral level, <laughs> you'll find purple creatures, and, you know. This guy, one of the only people who really wrote extensively about the space is this guy named Andreas Mavramados, and he published a book in the 80s called Hypnagogia, and he's got, like, the four stages of uh, hypnagogic experience. You know, his are like points of light and then faces turning toward you and then very specifically nature scenes, you know, or then, and in my experience, there are points of light. There are, I often do get faces turning toward me and many people do. I had a friend who's kid was really afraid to go to sleep because of all the faces that were turned toward him. And so my friend would like lie in bed with the kid and, you know, and report his faces turning toward him too and whatever. And then he couldn't get it out of his head. And whenever he was going to sleep, he had all these faces turning toward him. And then scenes, that definitely happens. Nature scenes. No, that's a little specific. Yeah. But like kind of scenes, you know, but this just is like this guy's experience. And now everyone kind of accepts it as a level's Right. And I've got my levels, like I've actually, as, as I've been pulling out the space, I kind of have my own kind of four levels of experience when I'm going through it. You know, I mean, and how universal are they? I don't know. There's like, there's like the mostly awake and I can, um, like fought, like I was at Carmen at the, um, at the opera with my in-laws. It was kind of a boring production. And so I just was going into hypnagogia, but I was listening to the music. I wanted to track the stories. And every time the music changed, I would open my eyes and read the super title. Oh yeah, that's what's happening. And then close my eyes and go back in. So I was able to, I mean, I was drifting in hypnagogia, but I was aware enough to be listening to the music and being able to tell them when the, when the music changed and opened my eyes, you know, or like a further in, I can, um, I can go into the space, but I can touch type, you know, because I can touch type, yeah. but my, you know, sort of like an automatic writing, you know, like John D and the Enochian uh -huh. Angels and sit back with my laptop and like type what's happening in the hypnagogic experience. And that level is really like a lot of wordplay and a lot of listening to what's happening around me. And then kind of deeper in where I'm more asleep and I can mumble into a voice activated recorder um, and those, that is much more imagistic wow. and really cartoon. And then like the really deepest level where actually you can catch the moment when I fall asleep. So it's right before losing consciousness. And because my body sometimes falls asleep before my mind does. And the dreams, it's freaking weird. The dream continues a little bit past when my body's asleep. Like I can tell my body's asleep. Yeah. And there's just a little bit of dream space just beyond there before I go into sleep. So I kind of have my levels of it. I, right. I, I don't know how universal that is either because I don't know anybody else who's as far into it as I am. I mean, are you are you applying it or are you keeping are you trying to keep it kind of sacred? Like drop in hints for the next day or, you know, I'm, I'm make money it. or something. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> I did I did this podcast with um, this, uh, you know, they're, they're very, you know, down in like, you know, Silicon Valley with this very tech forward people. And they were like, you know, wanting to talk about all the ways that they could use it 
you know, that you can, you know, for like the purposes of their time. Worst case, just your wellness factor right, or yeah. something. <laughs> exactly, right. And, and he ended, the guy, but the guy ended up saying something really good. He's like, well, I guess you can use it for work or for play. So I, you know, I, I wrote the book and I put, I, you know, all these exercises for different ways to use it, you know, as I, that I found in different traditions as I was kind of getting interested. Mm -hmm. So I try, you know, I, I experimented with all of those exercises for sure, you know, problem solving or, you know, generating ideas with Dolly right. Edison or whatever, dream incubation. I, like, I, you know, I tried all these methods and um, some of them really effective for me, some of them less so, but, but pretty interesting. But as a general rule, personally, I'm just, I'm just in there. Open, yeah. open, playing with the space and, and trying to figure it out a little bit more. Are there places, is there like some place, like you go to Nepal and the school children all do it? Not that I know of, but I hope so. <laughs> like, well, that's, and, and that's yeah. another thing, some, too. Some Rudolf Steiner thing, you know. I did, I did find this, this guy who um, was actually the director of the hospice where my aunt died. And I was realized that she was in hypnagogia near the, after she had left Conscious Waking. And there was like a few weeks when she was in hypnagogic state, because I know how to talk to people and in hypnagogia, mm. I was talking to her and, you know, and, and I mean, she, you know, she answers not, it's not, it's a nonlinear conversation, yeah. but you know, you, you can talk to people through hypnagogia. And so I was like, wow, that's amazing. And I, I only found out later that the guy who's the director of this hospice, that's his whole thing. Is like dying people are in hypnagogia. He's just like, you know, like a TEDx talk. But they can hear or whatever. Yeah. But they can hear and that it often gets medicated because families get upset. And my family got upset. It's like yeah. it's delusionary. No, Robin, you're not with Ziggy Stardust, you know, shopping for clothes, you know, at, you know, at JCPenney or whatever her experience was that she was having. And I was like, well, just let her, just let her be having that experience. So yeah. there are people get upset because it's so weird. And they, so then it gets medicated. She's having hallucinations. Yeah, exactly. She's having hallucinations. And so yeah, this shut guy's, her down. <laughs> so this guy's whole thing was like the, the liminal space between life and death. It's like hypnagogic, people are going into hypnagogic space. And I'm like, Oh, that's that's a crazy one. And now since I've been talking about that, I've had other people come up to me and say, yeah, that's true. This woman just the other day came to a talk of mine. She's like, my dying father has been in this space for a while. I've been keeping journals about right. what he says. And she sent them to me. You know, I was like, send those to me. Like I said, because your time perception is different in there, it could be, that could be the infinity of heaven and hell. Yeah. Or certainly the bardos or whatever. Who knows? Yeah, certainly the bardos. I mean, and, you know, I mean, the, the, the bardo zone, I think, is in, in the liminal, you know, I mean, the, you know, Tibetan Buddhists train for lucid dreaming, you know, partly for practice for the bardo. And they think that the, the way that you learn lucid dreaming is by first learning liminal dreaming. So they definitely, the, the Tibetan Buddhists who are doing dream yoga are definitely going through hypnagogia because that's the bridge from the awake into the, the lucid dream space. So they all are traditional liminal dreams. Everyone talks about their lucid dream practices, but they have liminal dream practices too. Mm. Funny, have you ever thought like to do like workshops in it or something? Or? I have done. You know, it's a, like, like a yoga nidra class. Like yoga nidra is a way that people are brought into mm -hmm. this space. You know, like I'm trained in yoga nidra and I use those methods. And then sometimes when I'm, so I'm giving these workshops and everyone's lying around, you can tell who's really in because people sort of start to jerk. You can see yeah. arms, arms and legs jerking. Um, and then one of the things that I'll do when I'm, you know, I'm often going back and forth between getting people into the space and then kind of coming out of it and talking about it, maybe getting them back in. And, you know, I'll say to people, you can stay in, the, while I'm talking, you can stay in the hypnagogic space. You know, I'm, I'm like the only person I know who doesn't care when people sleep through my talks. It's actually, right. I like it when people sleep through my talks. Has it given you some picture of what's going on here? In other words, of what we are and consciousness yeah, and stuff? Yeah, partly. And, you know, one of the ideas I better get into in the book a lot is this idea of liminal mind and how much imagination is actually a faculty of perception. You know, like the Sufis say that 
you know, we can only uh, experience the divine through imagination. And therefore, it's the most important faculty of perception. And even like vision, which is the faculty that we really privilege, as opposed to dreaming and imagination, oh, you just imagine that when it's only a dream, you know, as opposed to, oh, I see, you know, I mean, the vision is the right. faculty that we really, really um, privilege. It's still a huge amount of it is actually imagination and expectation, right? The, you know, people think that seeing is believing, but a huge amount of what you think you see, you're filling in with what you're paying attention to or what you expect to be there. Um, you know, so the whole swaths of things are missed, but by different people, you know, and so in the world, you're in your own experience very much, even while you're in a consensus reality that doesn't give a damn about you. Right. You know, and so the ability to go back and forth between understanding that the world was just fine without you and and yet that even the city is your you projecting your experience onto it. You know, so you're always in the space of your imagination, co-creating what your experience is. And, you know, without going into the cheesier end of you create your experience, because obviously people in war-torn countries, et cetera, you know, are yeah. not creating that experience. But, you know, there's a certain degree of it that, that you are. And so by going into these liminal spaces, the, the, like realizing the in-between awake and asleep has really made me aware of all of these in-between zones, like the fact that the world around me is kind of between me and it, you know, it's not just it, and it's not just me, mm. but the world I'm going through, you know, my, you know, the pe people react to me, to who I am, you know, how I look to them, or how friendly I am, or how, you know, how I'm, how I'm reacting to them, you know, the psychogeography, you know, my, walking around here in New York, where I lived for many years, and haven't now for a long time, and all of these memories I have of particular parts of it. And, you know, so my experience is superimposed even onto the city, you know, and being able to, to understand that experience and go between those things. So, yeah, in a lot of ways, it's really, it's, I really spend a lot more time kind of in those liminal thoughts. You know, it's like the Australian Aboriginals, you know, they have the, the, the dream time overlaid onto the real time. So mm -hmm. a, a rock is both a rock and also a lizard that died in the original time. And it's almost like you can slip back and forth between this time and the time of the original time because they're superimposed over top of each other. But like all of our experiences actually like that. But everything keeps, keeps coming back to climate change. Yeah. So it's like, it's too big a question to say, well, how will liminal, liminal dreaming save us from climate change? But in some ways it's not too big a question. Maybe it is just that, like the, the realizing how entwined we are you know, with what's happening kind of around us. So that that's that, you know, that tree is not just that tree, but it's your, you know, do you, do you have a moment of being moved by the beauty of that tree? Then that tree kind of enters into your internal world and isn't just out there, you know, in that sense, it's like part of you in the way that you're making your big experience and you're, you're, you're not separate from it. It's not like, you know, the tree's over there and you're over here. It's like, you're part of this this same kind of between zone of like what's happening. Well, that's the thing about liminal compared to regular is is partly that, that when you're in a liminal headspace, well then you're also in a, in a liminal logical space. So it's like where, you know, uh, uh, Nora Bateson always talks about this, you know, where does the stick bug end and the tree begin? Because the stick bug's very form is determined by 
by the tree. the tree. Yeah, exactly. And the stick bug's not going to be out of the tree. And the stick bug's touching the tree, yeah. and you know, right, and is imitating the tree. And so the value of that is is you maintain. It's like in the liminal set, you'll maintain your perspective, but you kind of lose at least a, a, a simple way of saying it would be your ego. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like you lose your ego, but you maintain your perspective. So you're still alive. Yeah. You're still a thing. Yeah. And you're still, and you're still, you still have your, all your sensorium. You can still, right. I mean, you can't see things because your eyes are closed. Right. Well, you see things differently. Right. But internal yeah. things. But like you can hear both internal things and external things. You can smell both right. internal things. You can feel both internal things and external things. You know, and like in little, I've been in liminal dream spaces where my hand resting on the, um, on the sheets becomes all of these different textures. And I can still feel that it's my sheet. You know, but then also it becomes like this incredibly soft silk. In that case, like the liminal is is actually me, right? There's the world outside of me and the world inside of me, and like like the skin yeah. the skin boundary is actually the liminal between these inside worlds and these outside worlds. You know, you can just lean back for ten minutes, you know, and and go into and and it's and like for me anyway, it's it's really like really it's like it's like um I used to hate napping. I was a really yeah. bad napper because I have a. I'm, a, you know, my chronotype is like I'm, I'm a, I'm definitely an owl chronotype. I'm really late, up, you know, late. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I waking up is, and waking up is really difficult. It's like an hour of sort of unpleasant fog waking up for me, and so I never used to like napping because my mind was like, why would I, why would I make myself wake up more than once in a day? But now I've realized that the trick is not to go below hypnagogia, you know, and I've, I've become a, a kind of like. Like unrepentant napper. Yeah. I could do it all the time. Like whenever I can, I just like okay, lie down for just 10, 15 minutes and like dip into the hypnagogia. And it's it's amazing. It's super refreshing, you know, both of like like bodily rest and also mind going to a really pleasant place. It's another good argument for mass transit. Yeah, it's just <laughs> many good arguments yeah, for mass transit. You, kind of, you can't do it when you're driving. No, you cannot do it when you're <laughs> driving. No, you're really, although that's, that's one of the places, unfortunately, that yeah. people have experienced it because it's one of those times that almost all of us has, have had yeah. when you're, tr you're, you're driving, so you're trying to stay awake, and then you get into that slightly hallucinatory yeah. dream, and that's, and that's hypnagogia. Right. You know? I mean, actually, being a passenger in a car is great. Like doing, yeah. you know, climb in the back seat or even just lean the chair back, you know, because anything that's going to kind of, when you're really tired, that's going to kind of keep you awake. Uh, is, you know, so napping in public, you right. know, or napping in cars or whatever is it, it keeps you on the edge. It keeps you on the edge, and you, you can't as comfortably sink down into sleep. So it kind of keeps you on the edge. It also also um, people who have regular relationships with cannabis. Um, or sleeping pills or even other psychedelics or whatever, um, which often are dream stealers. Not true with liminal dreaming. Actually, they help. Huh. They help you find the space. So, if, like, you know, if you're, like, with a cannabis high, if you uh, go up to the peak of the experience and then, um, you know, as you're coming down near the end, you kind of get that little sleepy space. It's actually a really great space to find hypnagogia. And does it ever work with someone else? Yeah, you, and you can do... Um, you can do, and, and if you're going to do this, you got to do it with someone with whom you're very intimate, a close friend yeah. or family member or someone who you, 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 know, you have to not be worried about. Yeah. And you can um, lie in the same space, like when you're going to sleep, in the same bed or on a, on a couch, an L couch with your heads the same way around, and both going to hypnagogia and then talk to each other through the hypnagogia, you know, and, and it'll, get, it'll get further and further apart. You know, it'll get to the place where just a little bit is said here and a little bit is said here, and then eventually somebody will, will fall asleep. But it's a pretty fun exercise 
to sort of try with someone else to kind of go together into this into this weird space. And, you know, and, okay, here's another thing that's freaky about dream space. And again, liminal dream space, because everyone goes through it, and it's so freaking weird, is that every human who has ever lived, every person that you know, has this experience. Yeah. You know, and we think about, okay, you know, sure, laughing and crying and eating, and there's all these things that all humans experience, but those things are so basic. Like, this one is so weird. I mean, this incredible state of consciousness which is it's totally personal. It's all about your own experience and your own images and your own, and yet it's completely universal. It's an experience that, that you have in common with everyone, and you can kind of join together in this realm of like, yeah, we're all having this dream space. And it's a, it's a, I find it a very connecting idea. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, because it's when you talk about it, it sounds like the way we used to talk about the internet. In the early days, and this would connect all the minds in one shared consciousness space that's both individual and collective and all. But, you know, the, the net may really just be practice for this. You know, that this may be, I mean, my, my comic book, ADD, is sort of about kids who, by going in, they find each other. You know, that maybe this is not a solo trip, but that we find each other at least, yeah. that we... That we realize what we are. So this is kind of going back to when I was talking about how this is such unmapped territory. And so one of the things that I love about it right now, you know, I talked about it, I worry about gentrifying, but right now there's no, there's no commerce. Like nobody. Well, you can't make money off this. I don't think. I don't know. Cause people have made, I mean, you know, lucid dreaming or psychedelics, there's total people making money. in Yeah. That. But if this is as easy as just holding a tennis shoe when you go to sleep so that if you drop it, it wakes up, you know, when, yeah, yeah, you, totally. when you, you wake up, if it's as easy as that, it doesn't have to become part of the market. And right now, not like, right. because the, the moment is right for, you know, you know, cognitive Liberty right. through the, through like going into this completely unmapped liminal dream space. I, I love the idea that it would stay that way, that it would sort of stay this frontier of experience. And in a way it is, because it's so personal, because it's going to be your own memories right. and associations and imaginings, um, you know, and personal history that, that kind of swirl through this kaleidoscopic tunnel that we were discussing earlier. And because those things are so personal to you, it does make it harder to market. And yet, look at lucid dreaming. I mean, there's... They figure it out. They figure it out. They're really good at it. The little... the little, their job. The little commerce robots yeah. who are around us all the time and... You know, trying to trying to get their little tendrils into we'll your see, but into at your least mind. for the record, it's free. At least for the record, yeah. it's free. And right now, <laughs> yeah, it's wide open space. Right now, right now, it's like consciousness frontier. Yeah, you know, go before anybody else like sets up market there. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, set up a nice morphogenetic field in there. Exactly. Let's have idea. it be resonant. Yeah. You know, let's set it up with our own ideas of resonance. But remember, back in the early days of the web, when we were, you know, wide eyed about the possibilities. You know, yeah, that's but kind of it's just fine, but liminal dreaming, it's the hometown for Team Human. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. I'm happy to have a hometown oh, for Team Human. Well, thank you, Jennifer. Thank you for being on Team Human. Oh, gosh, it's it so my pleasure. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was the author of Liminal Dreaming, Jennifer Dumpert. You can find out more about her book and work at urbandreamscape.com. 
You can also find out more about her and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a supporter of the show. We'll be doing a rare Team Human Live at the Maha Music Festival in Omaha, Nebraska on Wednesday evening, August 14th. You'll be able to find out more about that at teamhuman.fm once we've got the details straightened out. Among our guests will be Team Human's original and recently departed producer, my friend Stephen Bartolome. Stephen's tremendous role is now being filled by two people. Josh Chapdelin is our new producer, and Luke Robert Mason is our editor and engineer. Team Human is a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College, where you can come study with me if you ever feel like getting a fun and largely publicly funded master's in media studies. You've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.